Well, we can turn in our Bibles to Job 42, last chapter of Job. I had a bit of a complaint from one of the members of our household that we had uh, left poor Job, as it were, clinging by his fingertips to the edge of the cliff. And uh, we were taking a long time in getting back to the story. And indeed, that's true. We, we saw at the end of the, the previous chapter uh, the unveiling of Satan in the monster figure of Leviathan. Uh, we broke off for Christmas and we are now coming to see how things uh, finish up. Some people have, some commentators have complained that it's almost a sugary sweet ending. You know, it's all worked out, uh, you know, all lived happily ever after kind of ending. Almost domestic and serene after the, the fire and fury of the, the, the previous chapters. And there certainly is a, a movement from poetry to prose, and it almost does sound prosaic at the end. But uh, a better way of looking at it is that after the, the long winter of Job's suffering, our spring is returning. Uh, there is a shoot, if we use the Isaiah 11 figure, a shoot from the dead stump of Job's life. Spring has come to the garden of his life. Hope, uh, like sap in a tree, is rising once again. But before that can happen, there has to be a painful lesson for Job. And so we're going to look at this lesson, this revelation of God to Job. And then uh, we look at the justification of Job by God. And then finally, the blessing of Job. It seems strange that the resolution to Job's problem should begin with the words, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Uh, In verse 1 and 2, these words seem almost commonplace. Every believer uh, signs up to this. I should sign up to that almost seems unrelated to the great dilemma. Uh, The dilemma has been, the question has been, that Job has been suffering in extreme fashion, uh, despite the fact that he is a believer and has sought with all his heart to serve God. I've trusted in God, sought to serve him. Why then am I suffering in this way? And we saw last time that when God spoke to Job, he points to his control over all things and contrasts Job's helplessness. And there is a movement through uh, all the creatures, uh, the the wild creatures, and then behemoth, and then uh, climactically Leviathan, the embodiment of evil, the great dragon figure. And God has been telling Job that there is nothing in the universe that is outside of his control, his ordaining. Even the Satan, uh, he has uh, limits set upon him. He is on a leash and is directed for ultimate good. He is indeed caught with a divine fishhook and must obey the divine fisher. And understanding this, really understanding this, getting this, and relating it to his situation comes as a relief to Job. 
uh, which it must to all of us when we're in the situation of inexplicable hurt. And in verses 3 to 5, Job repents of his former attitudes towards God. Now, notice what Job is repenting of. His so-called friends had been saying, Job, you need to repent because the reason you're suffering is some unconfessed sin. But Job is not repenting of sin which has caused his suffering. Rather, he's repenting of some of the, the rash things which he said as a consequence of his suffering, under the pressure of his suffering, alongside asserting his own righteousness, uh, perhaps too vigorously, uh, he's gone too far and he's accused God of unrighteousness. And there will be a number of places we could point to. But, for example, chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, it is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds the judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Job has rightly acknowledged God's hand on everything, including calamity. But Job has gone too far in accusing God of injustice and of wickedness. He's failed to account, to take into account the reality of secondary causes. And in particular, the reality of Satan as a malevolent force. And now he acknowledges his sin. And now he repents and repents with sincerity and with deep humility. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And as he confesses his sin and he takes in the scale of God's sovereign purposes, he's given a new sight of God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you, have seen you. Now, Job's not saying that he was only a formal believer before and now he has been converted. He's been God's servant from the beginning. But winning through to this understanding of God's role in his deep suffering has brought him a clearer insight into what God is like. It, it's come as a new and deep revelation of God so that Job can only describe it as the experience of now seeing God as compared to hearing through hearsay about God. Suffering which had seemed such a curse has now been turned into blessing. It has drawn him nearer to God. It's made him uh, understand God more fully. Now, the remarkable thing is that this, this vision of God, seeing with my eyes, has not come about because Job has, has walked in the front in an altar call, or he has experienced some kind of a second blessing. It's come through suffering. In the cauldron of inexplicable suffering, God has granted to Job this inestimable privilege of a deep revelation of who God is. Well, the epilogue, beginning at verse 7, uh, returns to the prose format uh, of the opening of the book of Job. So there's a symmetry. Uh, the, uh, the prologue was, was in prose format. Then the, the speeches were in poetry. Now we're coming back 
uh, to prose as the book is tied up together. We're no longer in poetry. And in the, the main section of the book, Job had longed that he would have someone who would vindicate him. Vindicate him. Someone who would, who would stand and, and take his side. And now at last that has happened. The Lord expresses his anger with the friends. Eliphaz, Zohar and Bildad. Now, there's one missing, isn't there? There's the, the, the fourth one, Elihu. And it's interesting that Elihu is not uh, reproached for speaking wrongly of God. And we noted that. We were, we were taking Elihu's words and his speeches uh, at face value and taking them as positive because when Elihu was pointing to Job's uh, errors, it was the errors that he committed in the midst of his trials. Elihu never said that Job was suffering because of earlier sin. But Elihu was, was properly trying to defend God's honour and pointing out Job's rashness, his intemperate words. And notice that God says twice of Job that or he contrasts uh, the words of the friends with the words of Job. You haven't spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And we wonder, how can it be said that Job has spoken rightly of God? Well, the friends were concerned to hold up a theological system, which, uh, as they saw it, was correct. But the friends come across as, as, as cold and detached, whereas Job is always the, 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 the passionate believer whose, whose problem is that his, his relationship with God seems to have you know, gone down the river. God seems to be punishing the one who is close to him. And this seems to be the source of his, his pain. He speaks from the heart as a true believer. He's in a living relationship with God. His words are uttered through the pain of feeling that the God he loves has unfairly turned his back on him. And although God does not excuse Job's intemperate outbursts, and remember we've had the Lord saying twice to Job, brace yourself as he reproaches him for these outbursts when he's accused God of being unfair, the Lord nevertheless sees to the root of things, sees to Job's heart, sees his words in the context of his love for them and puts the best construction on them. And that's a wonderful thing. This is what uh, Bob File, uh, who now... Uh, <coughs> ministers with Jonathan in Christ Church of Glasgow. This is an encouragement to all who find God's ways puzzling and perplexing, especially if they are being chided for their lack of faith. God is far kinder than many of his followers and more ready to welcome an honest searcher than some of his self-appointed spokesmen are. So God sees uh, to Job's heart and says of Job, he's spoken rightly. And Job tells, God tells Job to intercede for his friends. They're to make a sacrifice and Job is to pray for them. And it's a wonderful touch of irony. It shows how wrong 
his friends are. They are the ones who need to be forgiven. They were accusing uh, Job. They were from a standpoint of self-righteousness. They were demanding that Job repent. And the Lord appears in the scene. And they must repent. They must make sacrifice. And it is Job. Wonderfully it is Job who must pray for them. And what's more, God assures them, I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So on the one hand, uh, they've been foolish. And on the other hand, God is going to hear Job's prayer. And that's a significant thing. The psalmist said, if I cherish sin in my heart, you would not have heard my prayer. God assures them that he will hear the prayer that Job will make for them. It's a sign of his right standing. (coughs) And he underlines uh, that by speaking of Job uh, three times as my servant Job. God is owning and acknowledging Job. He's my servant. He's my child. He is fruitful for me. Now, in, in this, uh, this phase of Job's story, the justification of Job, we have another of those glimpses which we've had along the way of Jesus. We've seen that Job is continually pushing us forward uh, in different ways to see Jesus. Job's story is that of the the righteous sufferer. Now, of course, Job is not righteous in the way that Jesus is righteous. And yet, from his perspective, the great question is, why am I suffering as someone who uh, has repented of sin and has made sacrifice and am following God? Why am I suffering in this way? He wrestles with that, that problem. And the suffering of Christ is an even greater scandal to the, the school of uh, Eliphaz, Bildad and Soar. And to the Jews who saw the cross as a stumbling block. Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer. But not only is Jesus the righteous sufferer, he is the great intercessor. His suffering is the sacrifice for those he will call his friends. Jesus is the one who continually intercedes for us uh, before the throne of God. So Job, in his intercession for, for his friends as they make sacrifice, and in the wake of his suffering, is pushing us higher, further forward, to behold Jesus and his cross. And so Job is blessed. Winter gives way to spring. The iron grip of January yields to the sunshine of God's spring. New growth appears in Job's life. And wonderfully God weaves his new blessing into Job's situation. But notice this, and this is an important point for us to notice. Before God gives Job anything materially, he gives Job himself. It's not a case of God showering sons and daughters and livestock and wealth and Job, and then Job turning around and saying, oh, well, God is, is good after all. He's given me all this stuff. I will worship him. That's not how it goes. Job, rather, uh, finds 
that the Lord is his reward before anything else comes along. It's the same lesson that Abraham has to learn. Remember in Genesis 15, Abraham, who is still heirless, H-E-I-R, without an heir, uh, is told by God that he is to count God as his reward. It will be wonderful in time to have an heir, but God is his reward. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Came across a beautiful quotation from uh, Robert Murray McChain recently, uh, which reminded me of the importance of cultivating a relationship with Christ. Set not your hearts on the flowers of this world. They shall fade and die. Prize the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. He changes not. Live nearer to Christ than to any person on this earth, so that when they are taken, you may have him to love and lean upon. It's not beautiful that we will have Christ to love and lean upon when our nearest and dearest are taken from us. This is a, often a time of year when we reflect on that very thing, isn't it? Sometimes our, our hearts are quite heavy because we're thinking of those who are no longer with us in a new year. But by God's grace, we have Christ. He is with us. There we have Job. All the sons and daughters he had prayed for, for whom he had made sacrifice, have been taken from him. All his material wealth is gone. All his livestock, his buildings, his tents, everything. We're not even sure if his wife stood by his side through his troubles. But in the end, he has the Lord. And it is the Lord who is his very great reward. But also, God's blessings are material. As we thought on our New Year's Day service on the new earth, the new earth is a place of tangible blessings. And so Job is loaded with even more than he had before. He receives from God double what he had previously. Twice the number of camels and sheep and oxen. He's granted seven sons and three daughters as before. And notice this time mention is made of the beauty of the girls. They are real head turners. There's something exceptional in their grace and beauty. Uh, the latter two girls' names uh, mean antimony and cassia. And both of these had medicinal uses. Perhaps it's a hint, I don't know, a hint that they were a medicine for Job, a medicine to his, his heavy heart uh, on their birth. Jemima means day by day. Perhaps it's indicating that Job has learned the value of living each day, day by day by day, in God's favour. And God certainly gave Job many days. He was blessed with 140 years, 20 times the, the, the number of perfection, seven. Now, the, okay, these, these even numbers uh, make some think, oh, well, this is obviously a myth. Look at the... the uh, 
uh, the doubling and the 140 years. Well, that in itself is no indication that this is not historically uh, factual. Uh, there's an interesting incidence in uh, US history of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, uh, who were both involved in the framing of the uh, American Declaration of Independence. And they went on to become presidents and they had been adversaries who reconciled in their old age. And these great worthies died on the same day, the day that was the 50th anniversary of the American Declaration of Independence. A remarkable thing. An alien from outer space would have uh, observed this and said, well, this is obviously a myth. This couldn't possibly have happened, but it happened. Something of the, the will to see through the 50th anniversary of this great day uh, meant the two men died on the same day. And here's a happy ending. And points us to the happy ending that all believers will enter in Christ. We will have riches beyond compare. We will certainly be surrounded by grace and beauty. And as with Job, our greatest prize, our great reward will be Christ himself. Let's just conclude uh, scanning over the book and drawing some of the, the lessons that we have learned as we've studied uh, the book of Job together. What are the lessons we, we take from it? First of all, trials are a very real part of the Christian's life. They are part of the way that God disciplines us and makes us stronger. So the Christian doesn't, we're not to view trials as something that's unusual, something that's alien uh, to the Christian life. Uh, we're in God's gymnasium when he gives trials for us to endure. Also, we learn from Job in a very stark way that there is no limit to the intensity of the trial that may come our way. Job's suffering was really intense. He lost everything. He experienced emotional suffering. And friends only made his situation worse. He was deprived or pruned of all his family, his possessions and his health. And at his lowest point, he is longing for death. I don't think any of us have experienced this kind of suffering. And thirdly, we learn that there is no suffering that we may come up against, in which we can say, God isn't in this. People might suggest that God has no connection uh, with something that has happened, uh, and say that out of a sincere desire uh, to honour God. You know, oh, that's, that's got nothing to do with God. This, that's a, that's a, a, an evil. God had nothing to do with that. And we know what people are, are saying. We know what they're trying to do. But actually they're not honouring God. By limiting God to the good times. God's ordination is of all events. And that's uh, borne out in the book of Job itself. We read in verse 11 that the family members and friends <coughs> consoling Job came to console him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And we see that in the 
the, the early part of the book as well. It's the Lord uh, uh, who, who takes his family from them, even although they were raiding bands of Sabaeans and others who were the, the secondary actors. When bad things happen, God is right there in the very centre of things. Fourthly, and, and this, is, this is perhaps what's most intriguing and remarkable about the end of Job. We may never fully know why what has happened has happened. Think about it. Job has a happy ending, but he doesn't know what was going on. We're not told, at least, that God ever gave him an insight into what took place in the councils of heaven. He is not told about the divine wager. It was simply a horrendous experience he went through in which God was sovereignly in control and continued to be good. And that is often all that we may be given to hold on to also. And Job teaches us that that is enough. Job had to accept so much by faith. There's a huge amount in chapter 42 that's not disclosed to Job. We are, we are the insiders, as it were. We, we have seen what went on. We know why Job went through that suffering, but Job's not given that information. Fifthly, we have to keep an eye out for Satan. This is a huge lesson. Uh, this is what makes Job's situation uh, so hurtful that he cannot appreciate the involvement in, of Satan uh, in his suffering. Now, we know that Satan has been given uh, limited reign to uh, torment and make Job suffer. But Job can only see God and thinks that God uh, is angry with him or as God is no longer good, no longer concerned. Satan is far more malevolent, far more active than we in our naivety give him credit for. We also know, of course, that he's a conquered foe. Uh, we also know it's wrong to obsess over him and to blame him for things for which we're responsible ourselves. But we need to take him into account and we need to reckon in the fact that we're engaged in, in spiritual warfare. And we need to remember that, as Luther said, he is God's devil. God has him on a lead. Friends may let us down. This is a sad part of Job's story, but it's, it's true, isn't it, to experience. Uh, we saw that the friends who came, uh, came uh, with the best intentions. Uh, they sat with Job. They tried to empathise as much as they could. But they proved disastrous. Uh, they came with a, with a fixed idea that our suffering is always the, the, the result of unconfessed sin. And they pressed this relentlessly and added to Job's hurt. Now, we know from, from the lips of Jesus that uh, some kinds of suffering uh, are, in fact, the result of sin. But what we learn from Job is that it's never right or wise to come to that conclusion with the uh, the, the absence of information that we are so often uh, suffering under. We can't see into someone's heart and conclude that their suffering is because of sin. I can simply pile up 
a, a sense of guilt and worthlessness which adds to a person's affliction for ourselves. Another important lesson is that times of trial are dangerous times for our souls. This is one of the parts of Job that sometimes is difficult to, uh, uh, to come down and extricate. The fact that Job is not faultless in the midst of his suffering. Under the pressure of relentless suffering, Job says things about God that he comes to repent of later on. He has discredited God's justice. Job 40 verse 8, for example. Uh, he has spoken words without knowledge. And Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12, 15, reminds us that uh, trials can embitter. That the mere fact of suffering doesn't mean that you're going to uh, come out improved and strengthened. They don't in themselves guarantee spiritual benefit. It's our response to trials that's crucial because trials in themselves can be a dangerous time for the soul. Maybe that's something that you need to ponder at the moment if you're going through some difficult time. How is it that you're responding to the trial? It's a dangerous time for the soul. It can be a blessing, but it also can be a time when we say or do things that we regret. But lastly, for the believer, the school of suffering is always intended to produce Christ-like character in us and to make us more of service to God than we would otherwise have been. And it's so obvious, it's on the face of things, but that was the case in Job's situation. Out of Job's sufferings comes one of the most wonderful books of the, the Bible. <clears throat> he remains for us an example to follow. And we finish with the words of James uh, as he mentions Job. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Amen. May God bless to us this precious word.